My name is Pastor Dan Leitonen. It's my pleasure, my joy to bring you God's Word today in the message from Mark chapter 8. The 19th century famous violinist named, uh, uh, his name was Fritz Kreisler. He was about to get onto a boat so that he could go from Hamburg, Germany to London for a concert. When before his boat was about to take off in about an hour, he went into a shop, a music shop, where the owner of the shop recognized the violin he was carrying and said, hey, can I see that violin? And so Chrysler gave him the violin and the owner looked at it, examined it closely, left the shop, came back quickly with two police officers and and the police officer said, sir, you're under arrest. And Chrysler said, for what? And the officer said, this is Fritz Chrysler's violin. He says, I am Fritz Chrysler. And of course, they didn't have Google back then and face searches. And the officer said, sir, we're not going to believe this. Come with us. We're taking you down to the station. This is a serious crime. They took Chrysler down to the station. And here he is looking at his watch. The boat about to leave for London and his concert. And he, he, he's at the last straw. He doesn't have the right papers for them. He doesn't have what they need to see from him. Uh, it's all packed away in his bags that are on the ship. And he says, give me that violin one last time. And they gave him the violin, and he played one of his most famous pieces for them right there in the station. And then he said, now do you believe me? And they said, yes, sir. <laughs> they gave him his violin back, and he got onto the boat and made it to his concert in time in London. His work confirms his word. Say that. His work confirms his word. And that's true for your Savior Jesus Christ as well. In our text this morning from Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, "Here, this is who I am. Uh, in the text it says it itself, the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, must die and rise again, and then a couple months right after that, he did it. He proved who he was. Even among all the confusion about his identity of that day, his work confirms his word. Say it with me. His work confirms his word. And you're wondering to yourself, why are we talking about Jesus' identity on Back to Church Sunday, a Sunday that we talk about coming together as a Christian community? Well, my friends, if we get, just like you're building a building, if we get Jesus' identity wrong, and he's the cornerstone of the church, if we have ideas, and we're going to look at the ideas that people had about him back then, if we have ideas about him and his mission and his purpose that are different than why we get together in church, then we might as well not get together at church at all. And so the best place we can start when we talk about why we get together as a Christian community, why we love one another, and how we love one another with a purpose and a vision that's based on Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the founding cornerstone of our church and of our personal life. And we're going to look at that today, okay? The background of the text in Mark chapter 8 is this. Jesus and his disciples are walking around northern Galilee. Um, It's a couple of months right before he would go to Jerusalem and do exactly what he said that he would do. And this is the conversation that he has with his followers, his close disciples, um, here in verse 27. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. All right, so there's an identity crisis even among Jesus' peers 
about who he is. And Jesus, I love the brutal honesty of Scripture. I'm going to talk about it again in a little bit. But Jesus doesn't ask some blogger 2,000 years from now to reconstruct who he is. He doesn't ask some uh, A&E history scholar that doesn't really have any kind of connection with him spiritually or even rationally in the Bible that was going to recreate him for you in a miniseries. But he asks, and I'd be the same way, and I think that you would too, if you want somebody to write your autobiography, you'd want them to write it as a personal interview, and he's interviewing people here, and he's saying, you tell me. You, Peter, you disciples, you've been following me for the last two and a half years. You tell me who you think that I am, and that's what he's going to say next. People of that day, they were saying, oh, Jesus is a, um, he's some sort of uh, reincarnate John the Baptist who was recently put to death, or maybe he was uh, Elijah who is long gone by now, and he has come back from the dead, or he's come back to earth. Or maybe they said he's a prophet, like prophet 4.0, like the whole line of prophets, and he just has a bigger display and less bugs. Jesus then says this, and today we have many different people throwing ideas out about Jesus, and this is really where we have to get clarity about Jesus, because people will say that he's a number of different things. In fact, uh, today in a, tw- a 2015 Barna poll that was taken, 92% of people believe Jesus actually existed, that he was a real historical figure. However, out of that, when you ask people, is Jesus divine? Is he, is he who he says that he was? Um, here are the stats. 62% of elders, 70 and above, say that he is, div- that he is who he said he was. 58% of boomers, ages 55 to 70, 55% of Gen Xers, 35 to 55, and 48% of millennials, that's under 50% of the millennial generation, which is 35 years and older, believe Jesus is God. And that same study said it seems like as the generations go on that the people who believe in Jesus as their Savior will decline. That's just a study and that's just a prediction. People today say, well, Jesus is a great teacher, You know, he taught us a lot of good moral things that we should learn to do. And Jesus is my higher power that I'm going to to harness for myself. Or Jesus is a dead Jew, some people say. Jesus is an idea that was started at one point. It grew into something that was something he didn't even expect it to grow into. These These are things that people tell me and I hear people say about Jesus. You too? And here's where the personal question comes in and the refreshing honesty. Jesus doesn't ask people removed from him thousands of years. He asks his own disciples, like I said. And he says this, and it's a question that we have to ask ourselves too, as an individual and as a congregation, but who do you say I am? Think about that. Who do you say that I am? The disciples have watched Jesus From the moment that he called them to follow him, just blue-collar workers, some of them worked in tax booths. They followed him for two and a half years now, and they've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen him feed thousands out of a boy's sack lunch. He's seen them raise men off of mats and call corpses out of tombs. What else was Peter supposed to say? He's seen it. He's observed it. The work confirms the word in Peter's heart. And Peter says this, you are the Messiah. In other words, you are the chosen one that God has been talking about all along in his word because your work confirms the word. And my friends, God 
your Savior Jesus is less concerned about assumptions and more concerned about your acquaintance. For one moment, put aside the assumptions about Jesus and think about the acquaintance that he went through to bring Peter to say Messiah on his lips. He walked with Peter. He talked with him. He did life with him. He showed him the very works of God. He forgave sins. And who only can forgive sins? Do you remember? Only God can do that. And Jesus did that in front of Peter. And it's in his word. I, um, I get this question a lot. I, I don't know if you've heard this before. Maybe, maybe you've said it in your own words or your own way, but you say, Pastor, no offense, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Have you heard that before, anyone? I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. And you know what? When people say that to me, it usually comes with caveats about, well, the church has burned me in a certain way, or a pastor has made a decision that I didn't agree with, or I got burned, or my family got hurt by something that somebody said in church, and I have to agree full-heartedly when they say the church is full of hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. You know the saying? Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors and see all the sinners. Yeah, that's, that's actually what it is. See all the sinners. I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. But let me challenge you, my friend. Did Jesus remove himself from sinners? His own followers, all of them that he's talking to here, abandoned him at the very time that he needed them the most. And he knew that before he even went to suffer and die. And yet he inserted himself into the life of sinners because that is the identity of Jesus and his work confirms his word. That he's going to remain with sinners whether they burn each other or whether from pulpit to pew and everywhere in between, we mess up. And the guy in the white robe messes up too. But Jesus remains faithful at the center of it all. I love Jesus, therefore I love my, what? Church. Because Jesus is at the center of all of us sinners who need grace. Jesus goes on and he's going to clarify for us about his identity in no uncertain terms in the next part, okay? He says in verse 31, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is Jesus' work, and his work, his work confirms his word, and his word is true for Peter, and that's why Peter says what he says. But now, he, now here comes the painful part. Here comes the cross. But it's the most beautiful cross that you and I could ever have. When you look at Jesus' work, you become familiar with his ambition, okay? When you become more acquainted with Jesus, like the Holy Spirit, it says in Scripture, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. When God acquaints you with Jesus, the Messiah, and you say on your lips, Messiah, you're going to acquaint yourself with Jesus and you're going to acquaint yourself with his ambition. We all have ambitions, every one of us. We know the ambition by uh, the sports team that we love, and we wear that team's colors, and maybe we wear that team's tie on a Sunday because we want everybody to know our ambition, right? A mother's ambition, a soccer mom's ambition for her son is to wear a big pin, right, with her son 
kneeling over a soccer ball at every game. She loves him, and she loves what he does. A father's ambition is to wear his daughter's school colors or, or support her in whatever endeavors that she does and to wear her name or to put the name and the stickers on the back of the SUV. That's our ambition. That's our love. That's our passion. It's what we talk about around the water cooler, about the injury, about your team, or about the last-minute comeback, the things that excite us on a Monday morning after a weekend of sports. That's just an example. We have lots of ambitions besides sports. But if you were to talk about Jesus to Jesus, rather, about his ambition, do you know what he would light up about? You. He would light up about you. He couldn't stop talking about you. And everything that he did would be focused on redeeming you, bringing you back to him, bringing you back to God. That's why, look at these words again. His ambition is to call himself the Son of Man. He's God. And yet he loves taking on this title. The title that he uses more than any other title in Scripture for himself is what? Son of man, because he wants to identify with sinners. And he's using a name that was used way back in God's word to identify this Messiah that was coming that would identify with sinners and die for their sins. He wants to identify with you. That's his ambition. And he says, it's so much of my ambition that I'm going to go and suffer and die an unjust death. Like he says right here, be rejected by the very church of sinners that he was there to save the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, because of you, his ambition. And one thing that we might miss completely in this short verse is the verb, must. Do you hear that? Twice. I think it's twice. You can underline it in your text. When we use that word must, it's our team just went to the Super Bowl. I must go and get tickets and I must go, right? Um, a father gets a phone call from her 16 year, his 16-year-old daughter on the side of the road after a late-night shift. The car's broken down. What does he say as he gets out of bed? I must go. I got to go right now. A mother sees her infant accidentally locked into, in a hot car. What does she say? Because the emergency responders are taking too long. I must go in. I must break that window. I must rescue my child. Jesus says the same thing about you. It's not that we shook our fist at God and said, come down here and save us. He saw us in our lost condition. He says, I must go. i got to rescue Dan. I love him. Once you understand his ambition, you'll understand what his church is all about too and what the purpose of getting together as a church is really all about. And we're going to look at that in just a second. But Peter tries, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast forward here. This is a really stark scene that I'm about to go over. But Peter is listening to all this about suffering and death and persecution and, and going to the cross. And Peter, that disciple that's headstrong, the rock, because he has a rock head sometimes, but he's also rock firm in his confession. A moment before, he goes uh, teeter-totters from one to the other. He, Peter pulls Jesus aside, and this is embarrassing, but he pulls him aside and he he chastises him like a father might chastise his son for like using bad language and say, wash your mouth out with soap, Jesus, because you're talking about suffering. Well, what Peter had in mind was a different Jesus, right, than the Jesus that Jesus is. He wanted a Jesus where everything was comfortable, where everything was okay, where everything that built up to glory and having, I don't know, maybe a kingdom on this earth, but not suffering and death and persecution, 
So as Peter rebukes Jesus, Jesus comes back to Peter, and he opens it up to all of the disciples that are there, and he says this, because he wants to teach them about the life that we do, the walk of faith that we have underneath his cross. He then called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Earlier, Jesus defines his own identity and purpose and mission, and now he's, 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 he's crystallizing for us our identity and our vision and our mission. Jesus' cross is unique. It's that cross that he died on 2,000 years ago that took away the sins of the world. That's why, like in our confession this morning, we said this Bible verse, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 1 Peter 3.18 You will never have to die for the sins that you commit because Jesus has done that. That's his cross. That's his big, looming, beautiful, joyful cross in your life. But that cross has, like I try to explain it, like a shadow, not a bad shadow, a good shadow that overshadows your life. I call it a joyful shadow. It it, it overshadows your life as you walk in faith because here we are within these safe four walls where we confess Jesus and we worship him as God. But we leave these walls, and that faith that we have in Jesus, that big cross, will have little crosses that we'll bear in our life. When you're at the workplace and you have maybe an anti-Christian coworker or uh, somebody, a boss, that, that asks you to do something that forfeits your core Christian beliefs because Jesus' work confirms his word and you believe in his word because of the beautiful life that you have there. When they ask you to forfeit, I'm going to say your your, your biblical values that, that Jesus says are good for you to live by, and you say no to that, even if it costs you your job, you're bearing a cross. That's just one example. If you're at school and maybe you're going to uh, school uh, where peers or professors are heavily steeped in humanism and they say that God's Word really doesn't say that or doesn't mean that, and you look back in God's Word and it does, you say, well, my Jesus, His work confirms His Word. And this is going to hurt, but I'm going to get Dr. Grade. I'm going to be persecuted for my faith because I have this beautiful, joyful cross in my life, and the shadow is casting it in my life, and I never want to leave that shadow because the moment you leave that shadow, as Jesus says, is the moment that you leave him. And it happens in the home. Loved ones and friends ask us to uh, forfeit something in our faith to get along with them more or to, 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 to concede the truths that we believe in. It's that beautiful, long shadow in our life that will be painful from time to time. But here's the beautiful truth in conclusion. As we walk, each and every one of us, and you can think of the particular crosses that you carry in your life, we don't walk alone. We don't walk alone because of two beautiful promises. The first one is that your Savior, when we do drop in that cross, His Ambition remains the same for you, and he forgives you. Picks you back up and says, take your cross again. For Christ also suffered for sins. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That's the message that you're going to hear from this pulpit and every connect group and Bible study at Holy Word. That's the cornerstone for cross-bearing. From getting you from cradle to casket, from birth to eternity, we're going to push that agenda, that ambition from Jesus to you, because that's the only one that matters.
But we are asking you, as a pastor, and I'm asking myself to take up this challenge, to re-engage in a Christian community because Jesus says that Christian community is good. A local church is not a bad thing. That's why we have passages like Hebrews chapter 10 that tell us to not give up meeting together as you see the day approaching, Jesus' return, but come together and meet together all the more often as you see that day coming, spurring each other on. Because we all want to get across that finish line. And that's why we have passages from Matthew 18 that say, where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. You have the Jesus that died for you with you right here through his Holy Spirit and his word. And, and in, in conclusion, there will be objections. But pastor, I don't have to go to church to be a believer, do I? I say true. You don't have to go to church to be a believer. That's not what makes you a believer. But let me ask you this. Are passages like the ones that you see up on the screen I just mentioned, are those not as true as the truth that Jesus died for your sins? Your Savior loves you? And he says, as my child, as my ambition, my ambition is to engage you with other sinners around my presence, around my promises in baptism that take away sins, around my promises in the supper that wash away your sins and give you forgiveness and strengthen your faith. It's not so much that it's what makes you a believer, it's, it's actually what believers do. We encourage one another. And Christian community is like a spiritual x-ray machine. It is. It's, the, it's like the laboratory where we get to live out our Christian faith and the condition of our heart is not a prerequisite of, of whether we're saved or not. That's what Jesus has done for us. But when we take a snapshot of our life in community with other people, we get a snapshot of the beautiful work of Jesus that he's done in our life to insert himself. And so does Jesus' gospel, does it make you want to re-engage into ministry and life with other people, or does it make you want to pull away and be an island Christian? That's the question that we should be asking ourselves. And I have to ask it myself all the time because I'm struggling with my sinful nature to re-engage again and again. I'm saying, God, you're there and you're faithful and I need you to, to be my strength and my struggle. Well, pastor, you know, this is great, but we live in a different age today. I can literally gorge myself on video sermons and blogs and all these great Bible teachers out there. And you know what I say? Amen. Do that. Because there are a ton of great resources, Bible expositors and Bible teachers all across the web. But let me ask you this. When was the last time that you talked to one of those Bible expositors or preachers? Do they know the crosses that you're carrying? Do they know your community? Do they know your presence? Do they know that you just went through a sickness or are going through a sickness? Do they minister to you on the level that Jesus says, I want flesh and blood meeting with flesh and blood where two and three come together in my name? Or has he blessed you with a local community of pastors and elders and connect group leaders that talk about life? That's not just a screen that's in your hand, but a face that's in your life to pray with you, to love you, to encourage you. Jesus' work confirms his word, and his word is what we do right here. It's not something that you have to do to be a believer. It's something that Jesus says, I want you here because you're a believer. 
because I want to encourage you. I want to strengthen you. I want to have that, that intimate spiritual oneness in mission together around me. So here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors and see your Savior who redeemed you, who gathers you together by His Holy Spirit, encourages one another in doing work and doing life together, bearing the cross. So whether you've been here for five minutes or 50 years, welcome back to church. Amen.